This is Keith Davis from Nest Realty. I'm here with Jim Duncan and Jonathan Kaufman on Sweat the Details. And today we're joined by Dr. Jessica Lautz, who is the Vice President of Demographics and Behavioral Insights with the National Association of Realtors. And we're lucky today we're doing an on-site uh, interview. We're at the Charlottesville Area Association of Realtors, who is hosting their first um, event at the Hillsdale Conference Center. This is a development and economic summit they're holding this fall. And um, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. And I'd love to just ask first before we start on, can you just kind of tell people a little bit about your job and what the role of a demographics and, and behavioral insight uh, economist is? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I have the coolest job at NAR. I'm no joke. Um, I feel very lucky in my role. I've been at NAR since 2007, and we have a team now that really looks at demographic changes. And we've done some of this research actually back to 1981, so a really long time period. Um, and just in context, that was the first Apple computer. It's when Beyonce was born. So it's it's a very long <laughs> it's a very long time period. Um, um, and what we what we found through all these demographics is that demographics in the U.S. are changing, and that's undeniable. We we are opening our eyes to it, but it really affects the real estate industry, and so we've actually really been able to take a deep dive, but not just on uh, buyers and sellers and who they are today, but we're actually starting to look at members too, and really understanding that 1.3 million people are not all identical, and we should probably be communicating with them differently. They are different people, and they have different wants and needs, so uh, really taking a dive into that. So before we, we went on the air, you were kind of speaking to um, some of the shifts of multi-generational. And mm -hmm. I was going to say one of the other people we're going to speak with today is, is with the National Association of Home Builders. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd love to just kind of hear your thoughts on, on if, if you want to give a quick snapshot of, of what you know about the home building side mm -hmm. and, and household creations, because I know you've done a yeah. fair amount of work in, in studying those, those shifts over time of households. Yeah. So, um, I think this is one of the things that's happening in the U S right now. Unfortunately, we are short five to 6 million homes. Um, and that is not a single family home in the burbs. We have, we have those. Um, what we don't have are homes for entry-level buyers. What we don't have are homes for people who want to downsize those types of, that type of inventory is not available in the market right now. Um, so I, I'm very interested to hear what she has to say as well. But there are obviously reasons for that, um, economic reasons. It's very hard to find skilled labor today to build homes. It's very hard to uh, be able to afford land. And uh, the lumber cost and steel cost has gone up very significantly in the U.S. And it has for the last few years. So there's a lot of headwinds there. But what it means is a lot of people are doubling up and they're not moving out from their parents' home. Are they, are they not moving out by choice of trying to... to save and constrain cash? Or mm -hmm. is this a question of there's literally nowhere for them to go that's within the affordable bracket? So it's a little bit of both. So you can live at home longer and you can save up money and you can get a down payment that way and get your debt to income ratio in check. And we've seen a lot of that. So we've actually seen an unprecedented amount of first-time home buyers moving directly from their parents' home into home ownership um, as a way to really cut down on their own costs for rent and utilities. Um, what we've also seen is that we know that millennials today are the largest generation of buyers. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk about millennials not being out there as the buying force, but they're out there, they're buying, but they're also living with parents at an unprecedented level. So it's a little of both. So when those millennials come into the market, are they buying, when I started practicing in 2001, we, you know, was, you know, people would stay in the house for three to five years. Mm -hmm. And then it shifted when the crash or the correction happened. Mm -hmm. You know, there was, you know, more than eight to 15 to never. Mm -hmm. And now I think we're back, you know, I see we're back more like the seven to 10. Is that about where we are or you see that shifting even more? 
So it's really interesting um, for first time buyers today, when they go to purchase their first home, they're expecting to live there for 10 years. Um, the actual tenure in home has increased. It's now nine to 10. Um, historically though, you're absolutely right on. Uh, that's spot on. We have seen historically that in the past, your first time home buyer thought, this is my entry level home. I'm gonna live here for five years. But we've really, we've essentially seen that double. Mm-hmm. Um, people think of their home not just as an investment or a starter home. This is the place they're going to live, and they don't plan on moving uh, anytime soon. Which is good. I mean, yeah. I think that from a societal perspective, that's a good thing, that they're going to be in that place, you know, roots, kids, life, for a longer period of time, for a healthier community. E- yes. I'm but. saying that with, <laughs> with hesitation. The reason why I say that with hesitation is that because there are no affordable one unit, one bedroom condos on the market, what we see is that a lot of first-time homebuyers are pushed to the suburbs. Not a bad thing, mm-hmm. but it may not be their ideal location. So they're they're moving into a single-family home where maybe they're a single adult and they now have a three-bedroom, two-bath home. That's great. It's great for their roommates, perhaps. Or and they can stay there longer than they would in a one-bedroom condo. Exactly. So there's no impetus to move. There's there's no reason to. Right. So if we can put on a kind of the crystal gaze to the future, mm-hmm. if interest rates move from where we are up two points to still mm-hmm. a ridiculously low 5.5%, mm-hmm. that will, of course, make it even more difficult for people to justify leaving a mortgage mm-hmm. that's paying off at a very rapid rate into something that doubles in price purely based on the interest rate. Where is that going to take us for, for households' movement in five years, seven years? Are we going to, I mean, is that seven to ten year hold period going to extend even longer by default? I mean, I think it depends on when you took on your interest rate and when you refied, perhaps, if you're if you're in your home. So if you've locked in this very low interest rate that we have today, it's under 4%. Um, if the Fed lowers rates next week, which is very possible, um, then you're going to see buyers who perhaps couldn't get in the market locking in those low interest rates, taking that as a, one more step towards affordability um, and perhaps loosening. But it's, it's still hard to save for that down payment. And it's hard for owners who are in their home today, even if they have equity, and many of them do now, they're in a positive equity situation. It's sure. hard to make that move and justify it if you've locked in that low rate. Right. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing job like pe- people transferring jobs? Is that you know again? You look back forty years, you'd go to mm-hmm. you know, IBM, you know, work for there for thirty years, and stay. Mm-hmm. I mean, how have you seen that shift over the last ten years? We've seen a is, sen- it, is it a question of the sticky versus magnetic? Yeah, question, something like or? that. But regardless, we've seen it essentially drop in half. So people are not moving out of state. They that that share has actually dropped in half from the nineteen eighties. Really? Yeah. So people so they're moving all local. Yeah, people don't, they don't move far away. They steer. I mean, and maybe this isn't really a real estate question. Maybe it's a a more general one, but Mm -hmm. is that because jobs are now so transportable that people are changing jobs and working out of companies in different states, but staying where they are? I mean, that could be part of it. But the the big thing that we're seeing in the data, which is really fascinating to me, when first time home buyers go to purchase their home, top of their list is not only I want a short commute, it's I want to be close to friends and family. Yeah. That was not the case for Gen Xers and boomers. They wanted to be far away from friends and family when they went to purchase their first home. At least it wasn't top of list. Short commute, good schools, those were top of list. But millennials, they move out of their family member's home maybe. They're very close to them. Their family member has contributed to their down payment and they're staying in that neighborhood. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it's something that, you know, I, I can't just, it, 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 you have to cut this too. 
Well, no, but I mean, honestly, I mean, I look at my own 16-year-old son who, who is not <clears throat> rushing to get a car, mm-hmm. rushing to drive. He doesn't want mm-hmm. that freedom. There is, a, there is definitely a different feeling of dependence mm-hmm. in a very positive way from a family unit, yeah. but, you know, that I could see in seven years playing on a different way when he's done with college, you know, if to come back. I mean, that's, it's fa- I've never thought of it the way you're saying it, but that's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, it's a change in the family unit. It's a change in family dynamics, but it's also a change in finances. So if you are more dependent today on your parents giving you a down payment, you're more dependent on their decisions in that buying process too. You're making less decisions here probably independently. Um, that That's a fascinating change. The population who's moving, the only population that we're really seeing is moving are those with student loan debt because they have to move somewhere for to pay off that debt and get a job. And they're, are they moving places that have jobs? Is that what you're saying? They're, yes, they're, they're exactly. They're dependent on, I, I want to stay close to my family and more. Right. where can I go make the money? Where, where can... yes, exactly. Where can I pay down this debt? Yeah. Well, and, and interestingly, I mean, if you if you look at the older generation, you had people, and I know within Virginia this was common, that people within the school mm-hmm. systems would move to Fairfax for their last three years of work because the Virginia retirement system based your, your actual uh, retirement payout on your last three years of employment income, not previous. Oh, wow. So people could make a move for three years and, and up their income, and that was their, their retirement savings. Wow. That's, I mean, that's an interesting dynamic, right? So where can you, where can you retire? And you're starting it right out of college trying to get rid of the debt. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the family unit. I mean, you know, we we were talking a little bit earlier in the prep for this, you know, that's shifting. I mean, it's not just, you know, parents and kids, it's parents Mm -hmm. and pets. Oh yeah, totally. One of my favorite topics. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, (laughs) again, it's, it's, you know, talking to somebody, you know, with your background, it's, it's Mm -hmm. fascinating because. How has that shifted? I mean, it, you know, I know I'm asking the question, yeah. how has it shifted? But, you know, where are we today? Because I know a lot of our listeners have been doing this for 10, 12, 15 years. And when yeah. I started, again, 20 years ago, it, you know, you might have had a pet, but it wasn't mm-hmm. like, hi, my name's Jim and, <laughs> and here's my dog. Right. Yeah. That, it, <laughs> now, now we call them all service animals and travel with them everywhere yes, we go. Yes. Yes. That's my companion animal, and they need to come into McDonald's with me, which I saw today actually on my drive down. Did you see the mini the mini horse? I saw a mini horse. <laughs> yes, on a... I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, so the, I, it is a really interesting shift, and I I think there's a lot of reasons behind it. But what we have seen in the U.S. is that birth rates have dropped actually to more than a 30 year low. So with a drop in birth rates it's very expensive to have a kid. And so the New York Times actually did this great survey and they said, What's, what are the reasons why you're not having children? And the top ones were really financial. Student loan debt factors in just the cost of rent. It's too expensive. So transferring over maybe a $3,000 a month per one kid daycare fee to a Fitbit for your dog might be a good transfer. Wait a second. $3,000 a month for daycare? Yeah. I had, a, I had a friend tell me it was like 1400 for his newborn. 3000 Yeah. In some areas, it's two to $3,000. DC area, man, that is really expensive to have one kid under the age of 18. Yeah. No, a dog's much better. Yeah. Right. Or a fish. <laughs> a fish, yes. Remember to feed it. Uh, I mean, yeah. Or, I, or not. <laughs> yeah. So, so along those lines, clearly we've talked about a couple of topics here mm-hmm. that are all bubbling up to the fact that mm-hmm. buyer, home buyers, millennials are buying their first home later. Yeah. What economic impact does that have? Because I know that there's an economic impact when somebody buys a home mm-hmm. and they, there's more money they spend more money at Home Depot. Yep. And, yeah, you know, totally. Kind of, it, it 
it cascades from there. What economic impact does that have on communities when somebody, when the first time home buyer is older and older and older as the years go by? All right, so I'm going to dispel one myth here. Um, the first time home buyer is not older. Okay. Yeah, so mic drop there. Um, yeah, so the first time home buyer is wealthier. They're more likely to be single. Uh, they're more likely to have family help, but they're not older. So if you can enter the market, you're actually uh, doing so at the same age your parents did. Since 1981, the age range is just, it's bounced around a little between 28 and 32, but that's the median age. So is it just those homeowners are waiting to have children until yes. later? So, so they're, they're gaining or they're paying off debts yes. and then they're beginning to gain their own equities Yes. and then using that to invest in the property at the same time, but hold off on children until later. Yep. And they're doing so also single. So more likely to be single yeah. than they had been in the past. So in the eighties, 75% of your first time home buyers were married today, just 54%. So more likely to be single, single female, single male, buying a house, definitely single females and unmarried couples. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of that as well. So people aren't necessarily saying I need a wedding ring. I don't need this, but I do want the house. So with that part, yeah. And so it's not that the, the they're not coupling up, if you will, but they're right. just not. They're choosing to not get married. Exactly. And I've had clients who've done. And I say because I've had clients who've bought together with contracts. Yeah, between absolutely. The two of them. Yes, absolutely. Boyfriends, girlfriends. I own a share of this house. You own a share of this house. Um, I, you know, I'm not an attorney, uh, but I would definitely say probably some legal advice is probably needed there because you don't necessarily. If that goes south, what mm -hmm. happens? Yeah. Yeah. So does that mean, you know, and I know there's all the federal data is out there mm -hmm. on the home mortgages, but can we see where debt to income ratios are compared to the past or see down payment numbers, what the percentage of, of loan to value type equations and where's that going? Yeah. So what we've seen is that your typical down payment for your first time buyer is just 7%. So they're still taking advantage of low down payment programs. They're not even putting 10% down. Um, that's around the historical norm. We're not, we haven't seen 10% really for first time home buyers until we go back to before the recession. So, okay. and before the boom, um, it certainly wasn't happening. Uh, first time home buyers, it's hard to scrape together that cash. In fact, there's a new report out. It's not by us, but that a lot of first time home buyers are actually selling something, a personal belonging. So that Pokemon card that they may have in the closet, they're selling that. I saw it's your crazy. tweet about that. Yeah. You're selling like old comic books and baseball <laughs> right. cards. Yes. And yeah. So, I mean, find what you can to scrape together that cash. That's what people are doing. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So, so I'm going to, maybe shift gears a little bit. So with these changing demographics mm -hmm. um, that we're seeing in the marketplace, how does this affect today's realtor? Oh yeah, this is a good one because it's a different type of buyer. It's probably going to be frustrating perhaps for the realtor today. Um, that expert who's been working with clients for a long period of time, it's a different type of client. Uh, Communication is going to be different. It's going to be perhaps faster or they'll text or they just will refuse to text you back. Uh, they want things at a faster pace. So the communication is different. Uh, but we also see uh, that younger buyers are more dependent on the expertise of their real estate agent than they have been in the past because they don't know anything about this process, but they very well could have moved from a dorm back into their parents' house, now into homeownership. They don't know anything about utilities. They have no idea what that means. They know nothing about a search process and they very much are using agents at a higher rate, but they're more dependent on them. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo that. I mean, I think that <laughs> yeah. not, the, not, no, not a negative connotation, mm -hmm. but I think it's, it's something that, my my buyer clients tend to recognize the value of that professional. Mm 
mm-hmm. and they they know that I'm going to trust you. The default is trust with yeah. a bit of mistrust in there, right. but the default is trust mm-hmm. because they know that they that you know this agent's been recommended by two other people, and so there's yeah. that conveyed trust through the through the equation. Yeah, absolutely. That trust is there. And that trust, the honesty, the reputation, all of those things are top things that people really want from an agent. They're also more likely younger buyers to use referrals. So they know that someone else had a good experience. They want to use that agent. So trusting someone in that process to give them a good agent to good recommendation. Um, that being said, you know, there's going to be changes in that process too, because so many more have mom and dad's money going into it. Uh, mom and dad's expectations are now on the equation. The other thing that we've seen a lot of, and we actually did a report on it, is that uh, buyer expectations have changed because of TV shows. Um, they've really have Absolutely. upped it. Yeah, there's, there's no, and, <laughs> sure. we, and we've been saying the HGTV effect is mm-hmm. is on every showing. Um, I've wrote a story about that saying HGTV ruined real estate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've heard that from members. We all members. expect every house to be perfect. We yes. expect, you know, and, and I remember watching, you know, one of the earlier house hunters, there was a, a buyer, and I know they, they everything's make-believe mm-hmm. in the way they deal with it, but this was a buyer who only would look at houses with doggy doors already installed. <laughs> and I thought, you know, the fact they're even faking this type of personality trait right. that you, you can't do anything to a house once you get in, it does kind of, you know, twist the way that buyers are looking they for They need properties. a better agent. They just well, need a better is and a better writer. <laughs> Much better writer. <laughs> no, but it's crazy because half of, of pet owners who just bought a house, they, half of them are renovating for their animals. So, I mean, if you're going to take out the doggy door out of that equation, I mean, maybe you're getting a house with a doggy door. I've got That's a real buyer. In the house, and they're going to do a dog shower out in the garage. And it's, <laughs> I it's, would love to have a dog wouldn't shower. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Yes. I would. But it's something, it's, it's again, five years ago. I mean, I just yes. got a dog a little while ago, so it's, I'm paying more attention to it. Mm-hmm. Like you bought it by a Subaru and then everybody has a Subaru. Right. You know, but I think it's something I'm seeing more of my clients are having that, the pet is a focus point of their, yes. of their life. Yes, absolutely. And they're unwilling to compromise on that. For unmarried couples, that growing share of first-time buyers, 20% of them actually said, uh, I'm choosing where I buy a house based on where the dog parks are, where the green spaces are for my pet. I'm going to have to date this. We might have to cut this. But did you see that story in the, in the, in the uh, Washington Post about the dog park that it was in, that got... Potomac? Yeah. Yes, I did see that. Wait, what about the... What oh about so there's a dog, dog park, park that got put into, into this neighborhood. It was, a, it was a park and then it became a dog park. And then one, one woman, I think in particular, challenged it because the dogs were barking <clears throat> at a dog park. <laughs> Yep. And it just got shut she down. She sent you an email last night. It got too. shut down because they had this huge community meeting, and it got shut down because the dogs were barking too much. You can't things. plan for everything, though. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you can't I mean, expect dogs to bark. Yeah, you can't. You can't plan for that. <laughs> just some things. Right. So. Uh, but what's a, what's a data point that you think that people should be paying attention to when when, when we're looking yeah. at working with buyers and sellers? What are like one or two things that we should be you know googling or having our news feed or whatever just to be aware of? Oh my goodness. Um, Just two. They're really, really important. <laughs> do you guys have something in mind? That you're no, no I don't. Okay. Okay. No. I mean, what do you think, what do you wish that realtors would, would, would know be, be on top of their radar? That we're a data source and they should come to us for research. Um, I mean, in all honesty, I mean, I will give a plug for social media to tell you the truth because I, uh, I think we're one of those untapped resources that people don't know that we have all of these reports that we're doing on a nearly daily basis. Your, your annual buyer profile yeah. is amazing. I mean, Thank and you. it's, you know, it, 
not just the quarterly, not just the mm-hmm. monthly, getting things from Lawrence Yoon. I mean, mm-hmm. those are fabulous, but some of the larger ones that we really don't have other sources, yeah. they're, the NAR studies are great. No, I mean, I echo, I echo that. The NAR stuff that's out there that you go, if you seek out, mm-hmm. it's phenomenal. I mean, y'all do incredible work. Yeah. Common, Common Ground is another one of the publications you all should yes. never stop doing. Yes, absolutely. Come and get the research. I mean, honestly, the research is out there for members' use. We want it to be used. Uh, and I will say it's sometimes really painful to pick up a big report, but we got cool infographics. You yep. should come and steal them. Yep, yes. Pictures. <laughs> yes, exactly. We'll sniff it down into one bullet point. Um, that I, I, I think that that's, that would be my plug. Okay. Yeah. And, and one thing, I, we, I know we, we've got time sensitivity mm-hmm. here, but I want to ask, as we've touched on, this has been mentioned three different times mm-hmm. in, in other questions, but I want to ask mm-hmm. specifically, what is the thought on student debt and home ownership? And, and I just feel like we'd be mm-hmm. a remiss in not asking so this is a really depressing topic. Um, student debt, uh, it's painful. It's $1.5 trillion in the U.S. economy. It's increased 150% in the last decade. Um, it's not, uh, I think one of the big misconceptions about student debt is that it's only focused on young adults, but it's not. Um, it's increased for those over the age of 55, uh, 1,250% in the last decade. Of, of the $1.5 billion, how much of that is coming from for-profit universities? Um, I don't have that exact number off the top of my head. Okay. Um, isn't, isn't that yeah. of the older generation who are using it? Isn't that isn't it kind of retraining money? That's yes. A lot of that is coming back. Yes, into play? a lot of people went back to school after the recession. So, uh, like three quarters of the debt for those over the age of fifty-five, it's for themselves. It's not for their kids. It's they went back to school. Um, a lot of those for profit, yeah, they went into default too. So actually, if you have a lower loan amount, you're actually three times more likely to default on that loan amount. Um, I'll throw in another. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. The less you owe, the worse it is. Yes. It- Absolutely, 100%. Because, it, because mm-hmm. is, is it less likely that you actually earned a degree? Is that part of that? Yes. And so it's harder to find that jar, job. It's harder to have that mobility to move somewhere to pay off that debt. Yeah. Uh, Major challenge. Can I throw out a couple more really depressing stats? Only, and I'm going to say, okay, (laughs) I'm going to say this one because in all honesty, I gave a presentation last week and a realtor came up to me after I gave the presentation and she pulled up her iPhone and said, this is my son's account. He is in this situation. And the situation is this, 55% of student loan debt holders, if they are on time on their payment this month, Oh, more next month. They are in a negative amortization loan. Look at your loan terms. Wait, 55% of yes. student loans are in negam yes. states. Yes. You owe more next month, even well, if you're making on-time payments. So me, I mean, and I'm, not, I'm just trying to break down where that's coming yeah. from. Does that exclude those loans that are not in a repayment schedule? Meaning the students who are automatically gaining more interest because the loan's not due, they're still in school. I mean, those balances are in, you know, in, increasing. Right. And that, you know what, in all honesty, it could be including those. But if you're making an on-time payment, and you can make a payment while you're in school, you're still owing more. Because of things like public loan forgiveness programs or looking at programs where the idea is that you're going to pay what you can think you can pay right now. Right. So if that's a dollar, it's a dollar, but you're in a negative AM loan. Which is going to crash first, housing or student loans? 
Oh, housing's not crashing. The demand is there. The demand is absolutely 100% there. And we don't have enough homes. So we're in a different state right now. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say that it's going to crash, though, because it's just the demand for education is so strong right now that younger populations are the most educated they've ever been in history. Yeah. I mean, I will say to the the amount of student debt that's taken on, I can't remember the article I sent. I know I sent Jim some numbers from it the last time I read it. But one of the numbers that I was amazed by was that I want to say it was less than half of the total student debt in the U.S. is currently in a period where it should be being repaid. Like mm-hmm. half of it is still students or within, I guess it's mm-hmm. that first year of deferment. Yeah. They're in a deferred period of, of mm-hmm. government guarantees. And less than half of our student debt is actually in a repayment period right now, which yes. is terrifying. Yes, absolutely. And you can defer that. If, you, if you're if you in a situation where, unfortunately, you didn't get a good job, you can just call your lender and you go into deferment or forbearance. And there's no default against you except for your credit and your debt to income ratio. That becomes very difficult. For, and that delays the buying process for the... Absolutely. Uh, the research that we've done, even people who are making on-time payments who are not homeowners today and are millennials, they expect their delay to be seven years. So that is a very long time period for them to get their savings and debt to income ratio in check. Well, Thanks thank for you for that cheery yeah. Uh, yeah. outlook. <laughs> who's Sorry. Got the, who's got the bourbon in the gin? <laughs> My God. Yeah. Can't afford it. Yeah, that's the truth. Well, you know, I will say this fascinating conversation and fascinating Mm -hmm. the the statistics and information Mm -hmm. uh, that you that that you have are just are uh, just I mean mind blowing. Uh, Some statistics on on student debt, um, scary. But you know, going back to the changing demographic of the buyer and the changing Mm -hmm. demographic of the realtor, um, I want to wrap up with this with with this uh, podcast uh, being sweat the details. As a realtor, what's one detail that a realtor should really pay attention to that a realtor should sweat? Um, I think the increased tenure time. Um, you have to keep that relationship going. And when I say increased tenure, I mean that uh, people are living in their homes for longer periods of time and they're owning them for different reasons and they're not thinking of your first home as your entry-level starter home that's a detail you should be sweating because there's not as many trade-ups as quickly. You have to keep that relationship going, whether that is birthday cards or dog treats that you're sending that recent buyer, keeping that relationship going is important. And it's, I think you have to look at it a little differently. It might not mean that you're going to have that person as a repeat client immediately, but you're going to have a referral. They're going to have a good experience. And that's, that's a detail you should be paying attention to. Amazing. Uh, so before we all say goodbye and say thank you, where should people go to learn more about what you do, what your team do? I mean, tell us a little, bit, a little blurb about that. Yeah, absolutely. Go to nar.realtor, go to the research page, but honestly, follow us on social media because it's the easiest way to grab all the information. Okay. We post a lot. We post from every economist and researcher in the department, um, and we super nerd out on the data. But if you ever if you ever have questions, just reach us at data at realtors.org, and we will send you any information you need. Jessica, we would absolutely love to have you back again. This has been a complete delight. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. This look is forward awesome. to hearing what you have to say later today. Thank you. It's been really great to be here. Cool. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks.